0: All right, doc- Dr. Goffney, we are live on Facebook. All right, I just
1: want to give a bit, nice introduction. Thank- this is the penultimate session of the Torah in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretation. This ongoing series, we have had the pleasure of learning with Dr me on the topic of the Bible as we know it has been canonized and then its interpretation became the subject of fierce debates between Jews and the nation Christian church centuries later with the arrival on the scene of Islam the battles still rage and now all three mono major monotheistic religions took part in the polemics um we have this of course is this, this is as said earlier this is the penultimate session of our of this class part of grisha's ongoing sphere as Islam I um, one just one note of housekeeping. If you are joining us on Zoom, welcome. I will be sending invitations to panelists shortly. If you are joining on Facebook Live, please feel welcome to ask questions in chat and I will relay them to Dr. Goffney. If you are in Zoom, feel welcome to turn on your camera to ask questions in person or in chat. And the only thing I ask is that if you are uh, joining as a panelist to please mute yourself when you're not actively speaking. And with that, I am happy to hand, hand things over to Dr. Agafni for today. Good okay, evening.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, so we have two more sessions. Today is not the last session. There's another session coming up. And uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to continue pretty much from where we stopped in the, discussing the Islamic way of reading the Bible. I'll just uh, share my screen with you. Okay, you see it? Yes. Okay, so again, as we, the way we always do, I wanna start with a brief review over what we've done and then we'll continue. So uh, what we've done so far, in the opening session, we discussed the differences between traditional and critical ways of reading the Bible. We emphasize that traditional people don't try to contextualize or leave the text in the past, but try to think how to make this text meaningful, inspiring and practical in the present as well. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that every traditional person or camp or religious camp would read the Bible the same way because different religious camps or uh, traditions are gonna be struggling with different elements in in the Bible and they're gonna try to overcome those uh, problems or challenges in different ways when they try to bring the Bible from the past to the present. We started dealing first with the Jewish way of reading the Bible. We emphasized that for Jews, the main concern probably was to think how we uh, apply, how we practice the laws of the Bible in changing circumstances. Reality changes, the world changes, and we need to think how we carry out, how we fulfill those same laws in uh, in changing the circumstances. And that's uh, the Jewish challenge. In order to overcome that challenge, Jews came up with what we call the drash, this uh, thorough analysis of the text sometimes more logical, sometimes more mystical in its nature. But the idea was to think how we can practice the laws, even in uh, changing circumstances. In addition to that, when Jews read the stories, they do want to make the stories meaningful and inspiring. And that's the way they're using the drash when we think about it in realms of agadah, non-legal uh, elements of the text. We proceeded afterwards and we discussed the Christian way of reading the Bible. And here we emphasized that the challenge was slightly different. For Christians, uh, we're facing, in a sense, uh, two challenges at the same time. On the one hand, when trying to preach to larger crowds of pagans, they wanted to uh, get rid of the practical element of the laws in the Bible. That's one, on the one hand. But also, they wanted to find references or allusions to Jesus in the Torah or in the other parts of the Bible. In order to overcome that problem, Christians come up with another, with a different strategy, and that is reading the Bible as allegory as a metaphor. By doing that, Christians tried to explain the laws as something that doesn't need to be uh, practiced or carried out in the literal sense, but rather presenting some symbolic values or ideas. Also, when they read stories, uh, historical events, Christians often would say, look, this, is an, this event might have happened, but it also uh, is supposed to uh, be used as some sort of prophecy for what will happen later on, in Jesus' lives or in other, or present other elements in Christianity. So again, it's a traditional way of reading the Bible, reading the Bible in a way that makes sense and makes becomes meaningful for the present, but obviously in a diff, very different way than the way that Jews read the text. Uh, this Christian interpretation, we said, was found both in the New Testament, but also in Church Fathers literature. We discussed then Jewish and Christian debates, Should the Bible be read literally or allegorically? And then we proceeded and started discussing Islamic ways of reading the Torah or Islamic ways of reading the Bible more in general. Uh, What we did in the previous session was mainly focused on the way that the Quran retells uh, biblical stories or episodes. And what we will do today, we will move on and talk about medieval Islamic interpretations of the Bible. How did medievalists uh, try to read the Bible? within Islam. Before we may, may, uh, get into all those texts, I just want to emphasize one thing uh, to make things a little bit more clear or to, to remind us of what we saw about the Quranic way of reading the Bible uh, in contrast to what will happen, what we will see today. So in the previous session, we discussed the way in which the Bible is interpreted in the Quran. We saw that the Quran in numerous uh, places, not, it's not a rare thing. It comes up very, very frequently. We see that the Quran, retells or repeats uh, episodes or stories from the Bible in its own way. Uh, When we discussed the Quran itself, we saw uh, we were trying to explore the different types of ways that stories are being presented. And as I said, in the following session, we'll explore later Islamic post-Quranic literature that includes references to the Bible and particularly to the Torah. Uh, When we spoke about the Quran, we saw that the Quran doesn't really find places in which the Torah is speaking about Muhammad or it's speaking about Islam. Quran itself, what the Quran does is often reads the stories of the Bible in a way that would resemble later events in Muhammad's life. It, to make the text more uh, similar or more uh, inspiring for Muslim readers, it would read sometimes stories in the Bible in a way that would pave the way for Islamic ideas. But in the Quran itself, we never find anything in which, uh, or places in which the Quran tells us where Muhammad is found in the Bible, or any ideas of Islam that are actually found in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. That does not exist in the Quran, in contrast to what we see in Christianity, where uh, the New Testament or church fathers actually pointed out to those verses or those stories in the Bible where they claimed Jesus was found or was alluded to. This gap uh, might have troubled later medieval Mas- uh, Muslim scholars because they really wanted to find explicit references to Muhammad or in particular or to Islam in general in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh. They wanted to find where is Muhammad found in the Hebrew Bible? Where is Islam mentioned in the Hebrew Bible? Not just reading stories of the Bible and think how much they're similar to what will happen later on in Islam. They wanted to find those actual references uh, to Muhammad or to Islam in the Bible. And what we will do today is to uh, try to see some of those examples. But before we do that, I want to explain what might have inspired or might have uh, gave this, uh, led these medievalists to look for such hints. Although the Quran doesn't ever point out to places In which the Tanakh, in which the Torah is referring to Muhammad, but the Quran does say in a few places that somewhere out there in the Bible you would find places in which Muhammad or Islam is mentioned. What am I referring to? So for example, in the second surah, which is the longest surah in the Quran, uh, we have this description speaking about Abraham and and Ishmael uh, building the foundations, raising the foundations of some house. Some people say this is another place where the story of the binding of, I, of the binding is eluded, but that's a separate question. And in the course of this description, we find uh, the following words. Kaila, you want to read a little bit? Well, and remember um, if, the no one else, well, if no
1: one else wants to, I'm happy to yeah. step up. Um, where would you like me to start from?
2: So we can start from the bit. We'll, we'll do the whole thing okay. now. And remember,
1: And remember the time when Abraham and Ishmael raised the foundation of the house, praying, O Lord, accept this from all us, for Thou art all hearing, all knowing. Our Lord, make us submissive to Thee, and make of our offspring a people submissive to Thee. And show us our ways of worship, and turn to us with mercy, for Thou art oft returning with compassion and merciful.
2: Now we're getting to the important verse. So this is just a prayer of uh, Abraham and Ishmael, asking people to become submissive to God, which is, the, the word submissive is, is the translation of "Lead Aslim to become Muslim. But in 130, that's the crucial verse, and our Lord.
1: And our Lord, raise up from them a messenger from among themselves, who may recite to them th- thy signs, and teach them the book and wisdom, and may purify them. Surely thou art the mighty, the wise.
2: Okay, so in this verse, Abraham and Ishmael already in the Torah, are referring to some future messengers that will emerge from among themselves who who may recite to them the signs and teach them the book. Some Muslims believe that this story referring to Abraham and Ishmael is indicating that already Abraham and Ishmael were familiar or, or were aware of the fact that a later messenger should arise. And from their perspective, this is speaking about Muhammad. And if that's the case, Muhammad should have been mentioned somewhere or was at least known to those biblical figures already back then. Even more uh, clear or explicit is what we find in the following two other surahs, surah number 7 and surah number 61. So in surah number 7, Muhammad again is praising those people who are following his words and, what does he add? Kaila?
1: Those who follow the Messenger, the Prophet, the Immaculate One, whom they find mentioned in the Torah and the Gospels, which are with them. He enjoins on them good and forbids.
2: Okay, So here's what's important. Muhammad is referring to or praising those people who follow the Messenger, the Prophet, that they find mentioned in the Torah and in the Gospel. Gospel is the Injil. In the, So we have here uh, a place where Muhammad seems to be saying that the messenger, referring to himself, must have been already mentioned, been mentioned in the Torah or in the Gospel. Finally, and this is even the most uh, explicit example, in Surah number 61, it's referring to, uh, it's quoting a sentence said by Jesus, and this is what it says. Again, we're reading passages from the Quran, but referring to Jesus, and what does it say there? 61.
1: And remember when Jesus, son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, surely I am Allah's messenger unto you, fulfilling that which is before me of the Torah and giving glad tidings of a messenger who will come after me. His name will be Ahmad. And when he came to them with clear proofs, they said, this is clear enchantment.
2: Okay, so here we have even one step further. It's not just referring in a vague manner, what we saw before, to a messenger. And it's not just referring to a messenger or a prophet that they find in the Torah or in the gospel. It's even mentioning his name. From this passage, it seems that the Quran is arguing that uh, the messenger, meaning Muhammad, was already known at the time of the Torah or at the time of Jesus. And they even specify his name. They say his name shall be Ahmad. So if that was true, Ahmad is supposed to be found somewhere in the Bible he the The Islamic prophet is supposed to be somewhere in the Torah because this is what Muhammad himself says, My name, Ahmad was already found both in the Torah or in the words of Jesus. perhaps for that reason, medieval Islamic uh, scholars were very, very eager to find so where is Muhammad found in the Bible? Not just to find resemblance in the stories of the forefathers and the later events that will happen to Muhammad, like the story of Noah's. Noah trying to preach his words to everybody and having everybody mock him. That's just a resemblance. But they wanted to find where is Muhammad found in the Bible? Where is Muhammad himself found in the Bible? Where does the word Ahmad, uh, where can the word Ahmad, the name of the prophet, where is that found in the Hebrew Bible? Our interest here is mainly the Torah. The, in how, where was Muhammad found in the Torah or in the other parts of the Bible? But I'm just pointing out that a similar task was also taking place with regards to the New Testament. Because in the Surah number 61, as you just read, Kyler, we saw that Jesus also says that he knows, he's familiar with the fact that a later messenger will come named Ahmad. So scholars indeed uh, also found references to, to Muhammad in the New Testament. Here I'm bringing you a verse from John, where uh, this particular verse is the verse where some Muslims argue Muhammad is already to be, was already found, in the New Testament. However, our main concern in this class is to see where is Muhammad found in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah. Where can we find uh, references to Islam in the Torah? Now, before we proceed, I have, we have to remember most Muslims in the medieval period were not familiar with the Hebrew Bible. They never read the Hebrew Bible For sure, not in Hebrew, but not even in Arabic translations. Even if such translations existed, it was certainly not encouraged by Islam to read Tanakh, to read Torah in the Jewish form of that book. Obviously, they read the Quran with all those overlapping stories. But reading the Torah in its original form was not something that Muslims would do. And therefore, it was not so simple to find or trace all those places where Muhammad might be found in the Torah or in the Tanakh. So who are the people who were able to uh, find, trace, locate all those references to Islam in the Bible? It was usually Jews who converted to Islam. And after converting to Islam, using their familiarity and access to the Bible in its original Hebrew, they were able to provide other fellow Muslims uh, proofs or indications where uh, they can actually trace or find uh, Muhammad's name in the Tanakh. We're gonna read the story of one of those famous uh, Jews who converted to Islam. His name was Samuel al-Maghavi, but he was probably not born as Samuel. He was probably ber- born as Samuel. And at some point in his life, he wrote a, a composition where he's also dr- describing what led him, to convert from uh, Judaism to Islam. And in addition, he's collecting all sorts of proofs based on his Jewish uh, education that led him to make this decision that indeed one should convert and change his uh, beliefs to Islam. The book was called, this is, not, uh, uh, this is a translation from Arabic. Uh, in English, it's called Keeping the Jews Quiet with a misspelling mistake there. But uh, that's the cover of the book, Ifacham el-Yahud. And uh, before we actually read some of his uh, quotes or places that he he locates in the Bible where Muhammad is found, I just want to read a little bit from his autobiography that comes before he provides those proofs. And he's giving us a very different, uh, he appears as a very interesting uh, character. On the one hand, he's a very rational uh, thinker, and he's trying to make, come up with the rational, arguments why one needs to convert to Islam. But then there's also this mystical part of his personality that also is part of that. Uh, so we're reading here uh, from the autobiography, autobiography part of, the, of his book. Kyla, you want to read for us again? I'm sorry yep. to b-
0: trouble uh, you. <laughs> if, no one,
1: if no one else has any strong, strong opinions on reading, I'm perfectly happy to. All right. As to disbelieving all, reason does not dictate that either for we find that they all preached lofty morals appeared for the virtues and against the vices and regulated the world in a fashion beneficial to mankind thus trenchant proof convinced me of the prophethood of jesus and of muhammad and i believed in them
2: for okay, some time so starts of- by saying i'm stopping you for a second mm-hmm. he starts by saying when he was thinking about this in a rational manner he decided there's no reason to accept moshe but reject Jesus or Muhammad. It's either all or nothing and from his perspective uh, there's nothing that makes you want to reject their prophecies they're all speaking or preaching uh, for uh, moral values and therefore why not accept all of them nevertheless for some time
1: um, for some time out of consideration for my father I held this belief without performing the Muslim rites, for he loved me intensely and could hardly live without me and was very much attached to me He was careful about my upbringing, occupying me since my early youth with disciplines based on logical demonstration and training my thought and mind in arithmetic and geometry. The two disciplines whose mind's developing quality was praised by Plato.
2: Okay, so he was also very considerate for his father, for his parents, and he decided not to hurt their feelings by converting to Islam. But this did not hold uh, for too long, because at some point, he says later on in his book, for a long time, I was not granted divine guidance in this uncertainty, meaning the consideration for my father did not abandon me until travels separated me from him and my boat became distant from him. Yet I persisted in my respect for him and in an effort to avoid distressing him on my account. But as I said, in the time of divine guidance arrived, at some point he receives some divine revelation. The divine call reached me in a vision of the prophet in a dream in the night, of the nine, of, this is the number of a month, the name of a month, in the year 558. This was in Maraya, in Abar So this is what he's describing us. This is not the year 558 that we count. It's based on the Islamic way of counting the years, starting from the Hijrah, the year from, in which Muhammad uh, travels from Mecca to Medina. Uh, in any event, here you see the Samuel al-Maghrabi More in a mystical manner, he's also describing these visions that he's receiving. And after these uh, visions, he decides, after he receives this divine guidance, he decides to convert to Islam, but he doesn't forget all of his Jewish background, and he remembers the Bible very thoroughly, and he wants to impress fellow Muslims, not just that he accepts their Islamic ideas, but that he can even bring proofs from his original training, from the Hebrew Bible, where Muhammad is found. And this is what he's doing. So we're gonna read different types of proofs. I, you need to keep in mind, there was not you know, a, a big number of proofs of that kind. It's not the same as what we see in Christianity, where essentially every important story or every important event becomes a prophecy for, can serve as a prophecy for later Christianity. In Islam, we're speaking about a few, a, a number of verses that keep appearing again and again in all sorts of Islamic writings. And probably they were initially discovered by Jews, by Jewish converts to Islam, but then they kind of, uh, other Muslims might recycle the same type of proofs. So we're not talking about big numbers of proofs. And I want us to to experience or see different types of proofs. And we'll also think whether these types of proofs would convince us in modern times. So the first proof we're using is taken from Genesis uh, 17, the Rashid Perek Yudzai. And this is something that is being, where Abraham is, uh, after Ishmael was born, but Abraham is informed that he's going to have another son named Yitzchak. Abraham is a little bit upset, and what about my firstborn by Ishmael? And God tells him the following verse, Uli Ishmael, Shma'aticha, with regards to Ishmael, as for Ishmael, I have heard, you.. So we'll read the English. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, I will surely bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will greatly increase him in his numbers. And he will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. This is what Abraham is being informed by Ishmael. This verse. Among a few other verses will become a central verse where Muslims argue Muhammad is actually found in this verse. Any ideas where? Where is Muhammad here? Do you see the name of Muhammad anywhere here? No. So where is that found? Where, where would Muslims argue they can find uh, Muhammad in this verse? So for that purpose, we're going to read this in the book of Samuel al And we'll try to see how did he find Muhammad in this verse uh, in the Torah. And this is what he's saying here in, the, in his uh, composition. The quote is not precisely the same quote as we have it in Artanach, but almost the same. Uh, in addition, I have to emphasize this is a text that is translated to English from the Arabic. It has all those Hebrew words in it, but the, the text itself is all in Arabic, which gives us a sense who was this targeted to. It was not really meant for Jews to use this. It's not really trying to convince Jews to convert to Islam. It's more impressing other Muslims that he found all those Islamic ideas in the Torah, and this is what he says here in his uh, in his uh, book Ifa'ham el yahud Ayla,
1: sure. God says in the third person in the third portion of the first book of the Torah, addressing Abraham, the friend of God, and as so for the Ishmael. third
2: portion of the Torah, is referring to the third parashat. This is referring to parashat Lech Lecha. We have hmm. the Rashid Itnoach Lech Lecha. so this is the third parasha. He's still remembering Parashat HaShavuah from his uh, youth. So he's referring to the third parasha, Parashat Lech Lecha, refer- addressing Abraham, the friend of God, Al-Khalil.
1: And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee, but behold, I have blessed them and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly in the original by Ishmael.
2: Um, so I'll read the Hebrew. Yeah, Uli, you you'll do Italian. the English, i do the Hebrew. <laughs> Uli Ishmael, shma ticha. And again, we're looking, so where is Muhammad to be found here? Now.
1: Right. Now this word exceedingly, if we compute the numerical value of, of its letters, will add up to 92, which is also the numerical value of the letters in his name Muhammad. Yet in this present passage, this was left enigmatic. Had it been clearer, the Jews might have changed it or admitted it to the Torah as they did
2: elsewhere. Okay, so what is he using? What type of proof is he using in order to demonstrate that Muhammad is actually found in the Torah? So he's using a very sophisticated skill, namely, he's referring to gematria. And he says, if we use this gematria idea, we can actually find uh, Muhammad's name in the text. The text says, So the crucial words here are the words that I put in bold letters above. And what he's saying is that if you uh, cal- uh, calculate this using gematria, so it would come out perfect. Bim'od, you see here, bet, and mem and dalit are 47. Mi'od is the same thing just without the bet, so that's 45. So 47 plus 45 makes 92, which is exactly mem chet mem dalet, which is the name of Muhammad, 92 as well. So here we have a clear proof Uh, for Muhammad in the Torah. Uh, Let me ask you, does this proof convince you? Would you convert to Islam based on this proof? So uh, Um. I think Samuel al-Maghrabi was aware that it's not as convincing, but he's actually addressing that in his own words. If you you remember what you just read a minute ago, Kayla, you said, yet in the present passage, this was left enigmatic. Had it been clear, the Jews might have changed it or omitted it from the Torah as they did elsewhere. So here we're connecting to the series that we had in the previous, uh, in, the, in the winter, uh, dealing with the text of the Torah. So if you recall, uh, Muslims also accused Jews of having uh, forged or distorted the text of the Torah for all sorts of reasons, among other reasons, because they wanted to get rid of all those references to Muhammad in the Torah. So what Samuel al-Maghra is saying, look, don't blame me. I know this is not the best proof in the world, but look, the, the better proofs that existed in the Torah probably were already removed from the, from the Torah by Jews way before my time. So I'm not going to be able to bring you proofs, but it says in the Torah, Mem nem that's not going to be found anywhere. All I can bring you is all those not, non-convincing proofs that Jews might have missed, that they didn't notice. And therefore, they still remained in the text, so don't blame me. The good proofs were there, but they were just removed by Jews a long time ago. So this is a way he's trying to address, in a sense, acknowledging the fact that uh, these are not the most convincing arguments in the world. It's just an allusion to uh, Muhammad, but not really his name explicitly. There's one place in Sefer Yechezkel, in Ezekiel, where the letters Mem, Chet, Mem, Dalet actually appear. And uh, in that, with regards to that text, they claim this is referring to Muhammad as well. But in this, in the text here, in from Genesis, it's just alluded in the bimod meod, the numerical value which makes ninety-two. But he adds another sentence here, which is also trying to strengthen this argument. Let me ask you a question. Today, it's very easy to do that. But if I was trying to uh, calculate the gematria of names in the Bible, I can assure you. That your names, meaning <laughs> Trisha, audience, your names probably also appear somewhere in the if you use your gematria, right? If I take a Kayla and I write it, I turn it into a number, we we will probably find some word in the entire Bible that follows that same that matches that same number, or Hanan for that matter as well, right? I'm sure we can find some 108 somewhere in the in the Bible. Would that make me or you? prophet or a messenger so obviously that does not work and he was aware of that problem as well for that reason he adds the following sentence they might say
1: they might say that there are a number of words in the torah with a numerical value equal to that of the names of zaid amir khalid and bakir but it does not follow that zaid amir khalid and bakir are prophets
2: right so we can find similar gimatriot of other arabic names. So he's using a bunch of arabic names, Zaid, bakhir Khalid, which are also important names in Islam, but he says that does not mean that all these people are already alluded to the Torah. The so answer, how do we, the answer to that is, so, yeah, so yeah. how will we respond to that argument?
1: It would be as they say, if this verse were the mere equal of other Torah passages, but we shall produce proofs and demonstrate that it is without equal in the rest of the Torah. Namely, no other verse of the Torah honors Ishmael as this one does, which is a divine promise to Avraham on how great will be the honor of Ishmael.
2: Okay, so what is he saying? He says, look, I didn't choose here a random verse from anywhere in the Torah. If the Torah wanted to mention Muhammad anywhere, this is probably the ideal place for the Torah to choose. This verse is speaking about a blessing given to Avraham, Regarding his son Ishmael, the forefather of all of Islam. So if the Torah says, with regards to Ishmael, Shma'aticha, and I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him. If we had to choose a place to, to uh, mention or to allude or to hint to Muhammad, that would be the ideal place. So it's not that I chose a random verse from Proverbs or from Psalms and I found the number... 92, and that made me think, wow, this is Muhammad. There's something more meaningful about this verse that uh, makes this uh, choice a better place to look for Muhammad, and that's why it's more convincing. If you see, uh, I didn't quote this from uh, Al Maghrabi's book, but if you see, I also put in bold letters the final two words of the same verse, of the, of the following verse. <speaking in Hebrew> gadol. Why did I put the words in bold letters?
0: You want to guess? I think it's easy.
2: Now that you saw the bim meod, I think it gives you, I'm giving you a sense.
1: Does it also have a significant game, Gematria?
2: Oh, good, good, good. I see already following the Islamic way of approaching this verse, at least Samuel al-Makabi's way. So uh indeed. What he's arguing is that you will, fi- if you will check this verse, you will see that Legoy Gadol also makes 92. Legoy is 49. Lamed is 30. yud is 10. And Gimel and Vav is 9. So that makes 49. Gadol, so you have Lamed again 30. Dalet and Vav are 10. So it's 40 and Gimel is 3. So 49 plus 43 is 92. So if you're not happy with the first Pim'od me'od, now we have two proofs in one verse. And uh, again, Uh, Muslim writers in Medieval Times uh, tried to claim this is alluding to Muhammad. And I want to emphasize again, this is very different than what we did in the previous session. In the previous session, we read how Quran tells stories in the Bible. And we saw, look, there are similarities in the way the story is being told. We can view some of the stories as they're being told in the Bible, in the Quran, in an anachronistic manner. So they tell the stories of Noah or of Abraham, in light of events that will happen to Muhammad, to make some similarities between the two, to show that Muhammad is facing challenges that people before his time also were facing. But in the Quran itself, beyond stating that Muhammad appears somewhere in the Bible, the the Quran itself does not point to any place in the Torah or anywhere else in the Bible where Muhammad actually is found. And this is what these Islamic uh, writers are doing. They're going a big step beyond what what the Quran was doing Uh, before. They're actually pointing out the stories in the Bible where they claim Muhammad himself is to be found. It's not the way that it was done in Christianity. Christians also want to find Jesus in the Bible, but it's done in a very different manner. From Islamic perspective, this is not really using uh, allegories or symbolic way of reading the text. They're reading the text in a literal manner, but using all these techniques, for instance, they were able to find Muhammad in the Bible. The fact that Muslims are relying on gimatria shows that, they, or that Samuel al-Maghrabi is using Gematria shows that it's not only that he was familiar with the Jewish Bible, he was also familiar with the Jewish techniques of how to read the Bible. So gimatria is often found in Midrash. So what Samuel al-Maghrabi is doing is employing the same technique, the same method, but for his own purposes in order to find uh, Muhammad in the text. And we're we'll proceeding moving on to another example. And the second example we're going to see is a little bit of a different nature. It's not relying on this uh, calculation or Gimatria, but rather on the meaning of the verse itself. In uh, Deuteronomy 18, two different verses, the Torah is uh, it's part of Parashat Shoftim, and the Torah is telling Moshe is uh, approaching the people of Israel, and he's also bringing them. Uh, all sorts of ideas, what will happen after he dies, after he dies, and also what will happen when they enter uh, the land of Israel. So he's talking about the judges that will come, and he's talking about the kings that will appear, but he's also talking about future prophets. And Moshe says the following words, Uh, or later on, in a rather similar manner, in English, it will sound something like I will raise uh, the prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, in him they shall believe. Uh, Samuel Armagabi here too found references from his perspective to uh, Muhammad. And this time, it's not going to be based on a gematria, but rather on the meaning of the text. So where is Muhammad found in this version? It's talking about a future prophet, true, but how do we know this is referring to Muhammad? If you didn't peek yet. Where's Muhammad here? Now don't look for numbers. It's nothing about math, <laughs> it's about the meaning. Why would that be referring to Muhammad and not to some, any other prophet that will emerge later on? How do Muslims argue that this is referring particularly to uh, some prophet in Islam.
1: Is it about lineage? Like who, who Muhammad's family and ancestors okay, are? Okay,
2: good. So let's see let's see what he's saying. So very good. So let's see what he's saying. He's going to emphasize the word, from your brother, from your brethren, from among your brethren. That's the English translation here. So somebody in your family, but not the direct offspring of yours. So Moses is not saying, some descendant of mine will become a prophet later on, but rather some descendant of somebody in the family. And from there, from the al perspective, from Samuel al perspective, this must be referring to somebody outside of the Israelites, a different nation. Let's see how he reads that. Um,
1: okay, so they cannot deny this verse from the second portion of the fifth book of the Torah.
2: So this is actually not found in the second portion. It's not found in Parashat VaEtchanan. It appears later on in Parashat Shoftim. It's from the fifth portion of the fifth book of the Torah. When he starts by saying they cannot deny this verse, I I actually hear some hear a little bit lack of confidence. Maybe he's a little bit shaky or hesitant whether this proof will be uh, accepted by Jews. But at least that's what he's trying to. That's how he's trying to sound. They will never be able to reject or uh, deny this verse from the, from the Sefer Dvarim. Um, continues this? Uh, this? this, yeah, this akim laim meaning,
1: I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, in him they shall believe. This is certainly an illusion to the fact that they will believe Muhammad.
2: So again, they cannot deny, this is certainly an illusion for uh, that they shall believe in Muhammad, because if it's talking about somebody a prophet from among their brethren it must be referring to somebody in the family but not direct descendant of moshe and he continues and explains should they say the text has
1: from among their brethren and it is unusual for our scripture to refer to non-israelites as your brethren you would say i it says in the torah your brethren the children of esau namely in the first portion of the fifth book so in (laughs) impression Meaning, you are to pass through the border of your brethren, the children of Esau, that dwell in Seir, and do not covet any of their lands. Now, if the children of Esau were brethren to the children of Ishmael, because Esau and Israel were the sons of Isaac, then the children of Ishmael are likewise brethren to all the progeny of Abraham.
2: Okay. okay, so what is he arguing? He's asking. Perhaps one might argue and say, when the Torah employs the words "achehem." maybe it's referring to some other fellow Jew, right? We see if you find your friend's uh, ox or donkey wandering around. Over there it also refers to one's brother, and obviously it's usually referring to a fellow Jew. So perhaps one might argue that Moshe here also is referring to some Jewish or Israeli descendant of his. Says uh, Samuel al no, that is not a convincing argument. If one would say it says your brother and it is unusual for our script to refer to non-Israelites as your brother, we will say to him, it's not true. We do find the term or the formulation Achim speaking about somebody outside, the, uh, not just somebody from within the Israeli nation, but also somebody else. For instance, when uh, Moshe approaches the people of Israel before they're about to go through the land of Edom, he says, "Atem so Esav is not one of the Israelites. It's just the brother of Jacob. And he's referred to as Echab. If this is true by, with regards to Esav and Yaakov, why not argue that when Moshe is referring to a future prophet from among your brethren, it also might be referring to some brother outside of the Israeli family itself. And what would be more natural than arguing that this is uh, speaking about Muhammad, the descendant of Ishmael? You might argue and ask, But it doesn't say really in this verse that this is referring to a descendant of Ishmael. It could be a descendant of another brother, such as of Edom. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's not so clear that this verse was was speaking about uh, Muhammad. There were other people in Christianity, for instance, some people argue that this is actually a verse referring to Jesus and not to uh, Muhammad. So it's not clear what future prophet this is talking about, but at least from an Islamic perspective, this is a clear proof. they cannot deny this proof that another place where we find references to uh, Muhammad in the Torah itself. Uh, the last one we're going to do is a bit more sophisticated, and I think it even connects uh, to something that will become uh, related will become related to Chag Shavuot to Ragmattan Torah that we're about to read, uh, past the text that we're about to read in uh, 2 weeks from now for this re- for this one we need uh, we will rely not just on uh, Samuel Almagabi's familiarity with the bible but also his he, he clearly reveals his exposure to jewish traditions to jewish midrashim to jewish interpretations uh, that appear in the in rabbinic literature so he was really a well educated jew not just a uh, uh, a young kid who went to first grade or second grade and read some stories in the Torah, he must have been aware of many, many other traditions in the in post-biblical period, and he's using all of his knowledge in a way that supports Islam. Uh, this is still from his book about the previous verse, and now we're moving to the next text. The next text is, uh, that he uses is from the beginning of Parashat Vezot Abracha the last parashah of the Torah, and I'm going to read the Hebrew, we'll read the English as well, and I'll address the problem that uh, leads to his uh, argument. The Torah starts by saying as follows, Moshe is now blessing the people of Israel right before he dies. I'm reading it in in Hebrew first. So this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. he said, So he said, The Lord came from Sinai and on from Seir upon us, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And I'm continuing a little bit in the Hebrew without the English translation. Uh, so uh, I want to ask you, I think it's a pretty obvious uh, question. What event is uh, Moshe referring to when he's talking about in verse 2 when he says uh, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from, from Seir us and shone forth from Mount Paran. What event is he referring to? So I think it's pretty clear. If you see the word Sinai, you immediately associate this with the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah. And uh, if it wasn't clear just by the fact that Sinai appears here, so as you saw, as I read in uh, verse 4, it actually refers to the giving of the Torah. Torah tziva lanu Moshe, morasha kilat Yaakov. And only afterwards, Moshe will start uh, with the actual blessings of each one of the 12 tribes but the opening is addressing the story of uh, the giving of the torah it's not really clear why does Mos- moshe choose to open up his uh, blessing statement with this uh, with referring while referring to the story of the giving of the torah but that's not going to be our main concern my main concern is the are the letter are the words that i put in uh, in the in a different color in red and this is a very interesting question the torah seems to be referring to Matan Torah at Mount Sinai. If that's the case, why does the Torah refer to numerous locations or uh, places where God appears? It doesn't just say that the Lord appeared from Mount Sinai, right? It doesn't just say uh, the Lord came from Sinai, but it also mentions two other sites. It talks about God shining uh, from Seir and also appearing or shown forth in English from Mount Paran. So, what is this referring to? Why do we have numerous references or numerous revelations that appear in this text? How do we explain that? So, this is not a new question. It's actually a very, very old question. And it seems that already in the second century, maybe even before, Jews were addressing this question, coming up with all sorts of explanations. But the most common explanation was that. Matter of fact, God did not only appear at Mount Sinai. And now I'm going to remind you of a legend that a lot of you probably are familiar with from early years of childhood that when the Torah was given to Am Israel, to the people of Israel, it was not only the Torah was not really offered just to them. It was actually offered to all sorts of nations, to all sorts of all different people, different uh, umot, but they all refused to get the Torah. And it was only the Jews who were willing, the only the Jews who said at the end, na'asevenishma, and that's why it ended up staying by us. So this is a very ancient Jewish tradition. And this Jewish tradition probably was relied in its original uh, formation stages on this verse, because the verse is referring to numerous uh, sites and not just to one site. How do we know this? So we know this already in ancient translations, one of the Aramaic translations called Pseudo Jonathan, Targum Yonatan, alludes to this idea in his Aramaic translation of the Torah. But I want to bring you a more uh, famous detailed description of this from the Midrash. Uh, the text I'm going to do now, this is just an illustration of Matan Torah, just to make you more fascinated. This is a medieval uh, manuscript of Matan Torah. but. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking away this pleasure of seeing this picture. Uh, What we're going to do now is going to read a passage from the Mechilta. The Mechilta is the midrash, second-century midrash on Exodus, but in the midrash it also uh, addresses the verse from Deuteronomy. So again, we're going to need you to read a little bit here. and it was.
1: And it was for the following reason that the nations of the world were asked to accept, accept the Torah in order that they should have no excuse for saying had we been asked we would have accepted it we hold they were asked and they refused to accept it okay for so here set, we already
2: see at the beginning what's the point of this what's the message of this midrash why was it so important beyond finding biblical uh basis for this idea what was the point of coming up with this midrash that the Torah was offered to all nations it actually appears in different forms in different midrashim. Some midrashim, like this one, emphasize the fact that Jews shouldn't feel, or the, the, perhaps some apologetic uh, agenda, Jews shouldn't feel bad. Why are they the only ones who have access to the Torah? They shouldn't feel puzzled by that. Why wasn't the Torah offered to other people? So it's assuring everybody, look, everybody got its chance. And the fact that Jews have the Torah does not mean that they were chosen by God in such a manner non-fair manner, everybody has a chance, and other nations just reject the accept the Torah. In other Midrashim, it actually appears in a different form. In some Midrashim, it's not putting their, it's trying to emphasize that it, the Israelites have a stronger responsibility for, for practicing or fulfilling the mitzvot. Other nations are not gonna be blamed because they said from day one, they're not willing to take this Torah. But the Jews who said, yes, we'll go ahead, not seven ishmah, their responsibility is much greater. So this Midrash, the idea that the Torah was offered to all nations, but only the Jews accepted, was used in different manners. But we're not concerned so much now with the message, with the idea behind this Midrash, but more, it's a biblical foundation. And the Midrash continues. For behold, and I'm sorry, for it is said,
0: here. We don't hear you. You're muted. You're muted. Ah, pardon me. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai.
1: He appeared to the children of Esau, the wicked, and said to them, Will you accept the Torah? They said to him, What is written in it? He said to them, Thou shalt not murder. They said to him, The very heritage which our father left to us was, and by thy thy sword that shalt thou live.
2: Okay, so we start by the verse of, uh, with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And according to this Midrash, God appears to the children of Esau, asks them, will he accept the Torah? And they reject. They say, we can't accept the Torah. And the Torah says, you shall not murder. We can't uh, keep this. uh, We can't stop or avoid uh, murder because this is our uh, tendency. By thy sword you shall live. The Midrash links between Esau and Seir because in the Torah itself, Esau is being described as a person who's Sa'ir, very hairy, and he also dwells eventually in the land of Seir. So we can understand why Chazal decided to link between Esau and Seir. And they say Esau was each actually offered to accept the Torah, but uh, at that point, he just uh, decided that it's not for him. We continue. Then he said to the
1: children of Ishmael, he said to them, Will you accept the Torah? They said to him, What is written in it? He said to them, Thou shalt not seal. They then said to him, The very blessing that had been pronounced upon our father was, and he shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand shall be upon everything.
2: go well, one uh, more and verse.
1: It, and it was and it is written, For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews.
2: Okay, so what do we see here? After Seir, now God approaches or appears to the children of Ishmael and he asks them the same question, will you accept the Torah? And they say no. Or they start by asking, what does it say there? God informs them, it says, you shall not steal. And they say, we can't do that. And they bring two reasons why stealing is part of their heritage. They start by saying uh, the verse from Bereshit, Behu yeh pere adam? And he shall be a wild ass of man, and he shall be upon everything. And then they bring another verse. Let's see if you got this one. And it is also written, for indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. What does that have to do with anything? Who says that verse in Genesis 40, 15? Joseph. So Joseph. So what does that have to do with the Ishmaelites?
1: That's how he ended up in Egypt.
2: Right, because the Ishmaelites are the ones who brought him to Egypt. This uh, Hat Ishmaelim took him to Egypt, so by, by quoting this verse, it's another proof that Is- Ishmaelites are thieves. Because Joseph says, and he's obviously referring, when he uses the verb ganav, he's referring to the Ishmaelites who brought him, which means Ishmaelites are thieves, are robbers, are nations of robbers, and therefore they can't accept the Torah. It says in the Torah, it's not for them. But finally, So, this is uh, the second verse. Well, I have to add one more thing. Why did the Midrash link between Ishmael and Hophia Mehar Paran? Because if you remember, Ishmael in the Torah dwells in Paran. After Ishmael is expelled from the house of Abraham, he journeys with Hagar, and it says, Vatikach Vayesheb and Midbar Paran. So, Har Paran and Midbar Paran were the same in Hazar's mind, and therefore, God must have appeared to the Ishmaelites. Once Esau and Ishmael reject the Torah, so then God approaches Israel, the Israelites, but when?
1: But when he came to the Israelites and said, at his right hand was a fiery law unto them, they all opened their mouth and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do and obey.
2: Okay, so when God appears to them, so the Jews will say, the Israelites will say, this is an ancient Midrash, and it's amazing what Samuel al-Maghrabi will do with this Midrash. He saw this Midrash, and his eyes were just glowing. He said, wow, I found exactly what I need. Samuel al-Maghrabi uh, thought that this Midrash could actually be used for his own purposes. And what is, how did he do that? So I want to start by very introducing a, an a, a important concept in Islam, and we'll see how it relates to what it says here. In Islam, there's a concept called nasr, nasr or abrogation. Uh, in Islam, every revelation cancels out the revelations that came before. This is a strategy or a technique that Muslims use also when they find uh, contradictions within the Quran. If we have contradicting commandments in the Quran, they will say, look, we have to follow the last commandment or the bottom line. So if something appeared earlier and then something else comes up later, we assume that the later commandment or the later revelation cancels out what came before. It starts as a technique to solve or to resolve contradictions in the Quran, but later on it was also used speaking about religions in general. From Islamic perspective, Judaism was a true religion when it appeared, but as soon as Christianity emerges, it takes over or cancels out uh, Judaism and now becomes the prevailing or the, the the true religion. Later on, when Muhammad appears, when Islam appears, again we're not denying the validity of Judaism or Christianity in earlier phases, but now Islam is the is the leading or the binding uh, religion that one needs to follow. This idea is called Nasr when. Samuel al-Maghrabi approaches and sees this Midrash, he felt, you know what, I can use it for my purposes. And he's going to take the same idea, but turn it over and argue that perhaps when the Torah is referring here to Sinai, Sa'ir, and Paran, it's not referring just to those ancient Israelites, Esau, Ishmael, but perhaps this is a scheme of all three religions that will appear in the world. Sinai is associated from his perspective with the, with Judaism, with Matan Torah, Seir is associated with Esau. Esau very early on was associated with Edom or with Christianity. This is a big theme that we're not gonna explore now, but in earlier Jewish sources, very often Esau was already associated with Christianity. Finally, Paran, as we said, is the place where Ishmael dwells, that could be easily associated with Islam. So comes Samuel Al Maghribi and says, You know what? I can use the same idea, but adopt it for my purposes. Perhaps what the Torah is doing here is talking about what will happen later on in future years. Moshe is giving us a prophecy about the history of religion, of future religions. It will start with Judaism, with Sinai, but later on, Judaism will be replaced by Sayyid. And later on, Muhammad will appear, Hal Paran, the place where Ishmael appeared, and that will take over. Uh, Christianity. I think Samuel Al Maghrabi would never have thought of this idea if he was not exposed to the Jewish Midrash that gave him this uh, conception that perhaps this is a description of multiple revelations that happened in the past. However, what he does, and again relying on this existing Jewish tradition, he made a huge, he had this huge uh, revelation that he can use it for his purposes. And as a matter of fact, there's some advantage in the way he reads this in comparison to the Midrash. What's the advantage of his reading of the text in comparison to the Midrash? When the Midrash reads this text, something seems a little bit out of order. Because the order should have been, God first appears to Seir, then to Mount Paran, to Har Paran, and only later on, when they reject the Torah, it should uh, eventually land on Sinai. That should have been the story from the, if we follow the Jewish tradition. But the verse doesn't present the locations, the sites in this order. It starts by Sinai and only later on talks about Seir and Paran. Sinai is not the last uh, stop in this journey. It's actually the first stop. So Samuel says, look, this multiple revelation is true, but it actually supports my vision, my understanding, Religion starts with the Jews. It starts with Mount Sinai, then it travels to Seir, to Jesus, to Christianity. And the final destination was in Hal Paran, in, with Islam, with Ishmael. So, this is the fascinating way that Samuel al Maghrabi found support for Islam in the Torah. So, we saw some references for the name of Muhammad as, a, as an individual. <inaudible> We saw some references to the idea that there will be a future prophet, a non-Israeli prophet, and this final proof is not referring to Muhammad particularly or to a future prophet. It's referring to Islam in general, and it gives a strong support to the fact that Islam is going to be the final uh, stop or the last religion that will uh, rule the world. We're stopping at the peak of this uh, journey because we still need to talk. And that's what we will do next week. We will try to see how the Jews uh, respond to all these proofs. Here you have uh, the passage from Al-Maghavi himself, where he talks about, the, where he brings this proof. This is going to be the last text we read today. He says, he brings the verse and he says, they, meaning the Jews know that Mount Seir is the mountain called range Sharat, in which the ch- lived the children of Esau who believed in Jesus. So everybody knows Seir is uh, associated with Christianity. Further in this range was the word of Christ, peace upon him. The Jews also know that Sinai is Mount Tu, Mount but they do not know that Mount Paran is the mountain of Mecca. The allusion to th- these three places which were the abodes of, minis- of the ministry of these prophets should impel the intelligent to inquire into the exposition of this passage which results in the command to follow the teachings of the Prophets. And he con- conclu- concludes by saying clear proof from the Torah that Mount Paran is the mountain of Mecca is the fact that Ishmael, when he parted from his father Abraham, settled in the wilderness of Paran. The Torah tells us about this thus, So this is how we end this proof. And this is how we end our class for today. What we will need to do next week is to discuss the ways that Jews responded, both to the proofs, to the way that the Quran uses the stories of the Torah, and later on, to these medieval proofs for Muhammad in the Bible itself.
1: All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Goffman. Thank you to everyone who came here to learn with us today. I look forward to, I hope to see everyone next week for the last class before Shavuot. And that people, if you want, that people who want to get to learn more with Bishop, please check out our class pages. We still have ongoing classes. Also, it is the last Today, May fifteenth, is the last day to sign up for the virtual se- uh, session of our of our summer colo,
0: which you can still find out about at colo.drisha.org. Have a good day, everyone. Bye bye.